SciBite is produced by JupiterBroadcasting.com, independent entertainment that's on demand. Check us out. Hi everyone, you're listening to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast. We recorded this one live on May 1st, 2012. This is episode 44. My name is Chris, and joining us like every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, happy science to you, Heather. Happy science. What do we have coming up in today's episode of SciBite? Today we're going to look at mining asteroids, recovery from strokes, lefties, talking to yourself, solar cells, a review of some recent major new media stories, viewer feedback, spacecraft updates, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Well, so I don't usually do this, but uh-huh. this week I got a hold of you before the show. I guess yes. it must have been Saturday, Sunday, probably. And I, yeah. I, I was asked, Mars, did you see this story? And uh, uh, <laughs> you're like, oh, Chris, oh, Chris, it's already in the news doc. So I have been looking forward to talking about this for days. So should we jump <laughs> yes. into the news? Let's go. All right, what is the first story in the news? Docket today is mining asteroids. Okay. All right, so people have been talking a lot about this. And yeah. uh, honestly, some some very rich people sound like they're very serious about getting into this. Is this crap? Uh, not total. I mean, the idea has been around for over 100 years. You know, you see little rocks out there, you're like, hey, we should go out there, dig up some cool stuff and bring it back. Right, yeah. Well, and especially as we uh, run out of resources here at home, and right, now also it's becoming more right. Well, and you know, with the manufacturing, just with even, and the thing is, this has kind of become a bigger deal. Just yeah, you know, in the last few years, with the uh, proliferation of smartphones and iPads, mm-hmm. uh, I was reading an article uh, in the New York Times that talked about uh, like Apple. One of the reasons they build the iPad and the iPhone in China, besides labor, mm-hmm. is because all of the precious materials and resources that they need are also in China. So there's an yeah. economy there for all those. And and also the similar situation in Africa, where there's a lot of those types of materials that are in an area that has a lot of issues. And so it's hard to get to them and mine them. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, you got to figure people are going to look up to those asteroids and start oh, yeah. rubbing their fingers together and making plans. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, very, they're very different compositions of asteroids. There are you know, various types. But there are some that will have... You know, those rare materials, possibly uh, those rare minerals, the ones that are found in uh, closer to Mars and Earth, kind of like stone and iron type. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, various types of those. The question is, how come we can actually talk about it now? Right. It's because we've been discovering and characterizing enough of these small near Earth asteroids. You know, occasionally here I'm like, oh, one just passed between the Earth and the Moon. Oh my gosh, we're we're six hours away from from completely dinosauring out of the universe. And so there's these smaller ones. <laughs> I think you just, did you just make up a term for extinction? Yes, <laughs> nice. I did. <laughs> I like that one, dinosauring it out. <laughs> yep. Okay. So <laughs> hold on, Heather. You know what? You earned yourself. You earned yourself Uh-oh. a side bite. No, no, it's good. You got yourself a ding. There you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was right. like, oh no. 
But, so uh, yeah, we've we've obviously and didn't we also cover? I think we might have covered on the show about a uh, about a probe that was smashed into an asteroid to get details about what was in it. I mean, we've get we've been getting yeah. very curious. Yeah, we've had those. We've had them um, fly by them. Uh, recently, there was a in the last month there was a video put out that was essentially a composition of a whole bunch of these images as we flew by one of these asteroids. So we're getting more different abilities to get to them and just you know investigate them we're having uh, more equipment uh, solar electric propulsion letting us get to these much better so it's it's estimated that um you know some people think there'll be a human presence on the on the moon or around the moon by the 2020s um, now where what can they possibly base that off of you know i'm not sure i guess it could i guess i should i shouldn't make the assumption they meant american yeah, yeah, that's maybe yeah. certainly possible. Yeah, and maybe not governmental. Um, oh yeah, yeah, but sure. That could also mean uh, just remote probes that we keep up there that we're interacting with. I suppose that seems quite feasible to me. Yeah, but the reason why this has come up now, uh, why it made it the big news, is because a company, Planetary Resources Inc., they've actually come out and publicly announced that they have plans to mine asteroids. Now this is this is interesting because they have some pretty big backers who have some deep they pockets, do. and yes. uh, they've shown some concept videos of of different ways they could mine that seem mm-hmm. to me as a extreme layman uh, very potentially plausible. They have yeah. a tiny, well, a smallish craft that they would launch, mm-hmm. and and then it would collect the resources, and it would be be much larger on return. But you know, the expensive part is launching, and, and then it would be sort mm-hmm. of a small lighter self. Yeah, I mean that seems it, practical. Yeah, I mean, they've been around for three years or so, and they only had to go public because now they want to put out job ads. They're like, "All right, we really need these people, but we kind of have to announce why we need these people yeah. to get the right people." <laughs> Very true. I it mean, helps. You, huh? But I mean, like you're saying, there's you know Google execs, there's all sorts of different people, even uh, James Cameron. James Cameron, been- yeah. To do some things, uh, astronaut Tom Jones, MIT scientists. There's all these people now, they're definitely quite a few years away from actually doing this kind of a thing. But they're talking about going out, uh, possibly seizing an asteroid, bringing it closer to the earth, mining it, or going out, you know, get some materials on it and then come back. There's, there's different things that are going to happen, but they will be able to use um, telescopes. Uh, like Hubble or other orbiting telescopes or ground-based telescopes to kind of look at all of these, you know, the data that's already there or data that might come soon or could they, you know, rent a small sec- uh, piece of time off one so they can look at these uh, near-Earth asteroids that they might be able to go out to. Then kind of start building up a library of these going, I think these are the more interesting ones. We should probably try. These are smaller and interesting. We should probably try them first. Sure, yeah. That way they kind of don't waste money on something that returns. Because the worst case scenario, yeah. if, if they send some, if they have some big expensive thing and they send it up there and it comes back with dust. Yeah, it comes back with pails of dirt. That's not going to go over too well. You're not going to get yeah. too many more investors. Now, do you know yeah, any kind of, of the uh, business details? Like, are they, are they legitimately assembling prototypes or uh, is this like a, a bunch of really great business plans and maybe like a office in some sort of some small room somewhere i mean do you know at what stage they're at i i think that's why they had to put out the call for these engineers they were looking for engineers you know to actually 
get this designed and fleed, fleeted, um, you know, scale up from Bruce Willis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to have that dig you in there. You went there. You went there. Uh, of course I had to. But, <laughs> you know, so I think that they're getting to the point where they really need the nitty gritty numbers and drawings and 3D graphics to kind of get this further. It looks like they have some of that already. But in order to, like, take the next step, you know, bring it from really good concept and designs and business ideas to more realistic how do you put this together it could actually fly and go out there and come back says scientist a b and engineers c and d i think that's where they're moving right now well it's pretty interesting um and i guess at 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 some point mm-hmm. there it's not none of this has been really well defined because there's no industry doing this yet so no. it's going to be to somebody's advantage to be the first person to get up there because whatever laws are created i'm sure they will have heavy influence on if they're sort of the the front runner how does that work you can't own an asteroid no well that's where the interesting twist comes in now you're taking it from the universe you're not even i mean earth at least at some level Mm -hmm. is quote unquote ours so you can quote unquote assign ownership over a piece of the earth but yeah an asteroid yeah well 1967 outer space treaty it like is quoted and it has a whole bunch of articles you know essentially saying Nobody can go and claim the moon as your own. You know, no nation can go and claim sovereignty over any one thing outside of Earth. Okay. No other celestial body. But the question is, they specifically stated nations. So does that apply to individuals or companies? So can a company go out and say, land on an asteroid and sort of stake its claim? Well, and won't they, in a sense, I would think, if they just found an area that was rich in materials, Mm -hmm. they would probably, I would think, have a very large area around that to avoid any kind of danger with another company's operation. So you you would essentially claim something as your own just by getting there first, I would think, because you're not going to authorize somebody else to work on that same rock. Oh, yeah. I mean... It's certainly possible that some of the the larger asteroids, should they be able to get there, you know, some smaller company may be able to say, I want this section. You stay on your, you stay on your side of the asteroid. You know, draw, like little kid style, draw the, draw the line down the asteroid. I mean, could you make stakes, you know, plot out a stake Mm -hmm. in an asteroid? Could you buy out the hole? It's an interesting idea. I mean. Something like this, though, seems almost, uh, we have to do it. And. And that's always why I've always been so kind of bummed out when we talk about mm-hmm. shutting down the space program, not actually yeah. having any firm plans, because it's like, geez, if we don't get out there, we are we are literally at the point now where we can see the end of the availability of the resources that we rely yeah. upon. I mean, like literally as a species, we can we can calculate that and we know it's coming yeah. up and it's like we have to get these from somewhere. Yeah, I will try to keep this thought in a closed, not going off on a spiel concept, but the idea of going to space is sort of. It's the way to go. It's the difference between the Star Trek future and the apocalypse. Everyone goes to the end future. If you decide that there is only on Earth, there's only so many finite resources. Everyone else is your enemy. Everyone else is competing for you for something. Every yeah. other country is competing for you for something. Yeah. And everyone else is your enemy. And it's not to your advantage that anyone else gets smarter or be able to get anything more. But if space becomes available, then you want everyone to have an idea. You want, you know some random peasant in another country to be able to possibly get education so that they can help further the science that says, hey, let's go out there, let's get this done. And now we have all these other resources to our to our understanding, to our 
to our knowledge and, you know, to our, you know, that we own. Well, let's talk about what about, what do you think the feasibility is since asteroid mining seems incredibly difficult and it's going yes. to be extremely rare for an opportunity. It's probably going to be a very, at least early on, something that yeah. very rarely happens. What about looking more internally, under the sea, deep sea mining, that kind of stuff? Is that practical and is that dangerous? I mean, do you, do you know, have any thoughts on that? They are actually moving forward with this. There are a couple, uh, no, there's a Canadian-based uh, company. They're looking into some, uh, some of the uh, sea off the coast of China. There's huh. particular areas that have high grades of copper, gold, zinc, silver. These Jeez, China really lucked out, didn't they? <laughs> well, it's just geographically, it's where some hydrothermal vents are, and it's not too deep. I mean, there are, uh, you know, about a mile under the sea level. So a little bit difficult. So then there's the idea of how do you do that? Do you, <clears throat> you know, do everything down there, or do you just put it on a conveyor and chug? the seafloor up the conveyor belt and do what you want to it on or what on the ground. What kind of environmental impact does this have? Do we know? That's another question. These Seems are all, like a big one. Yeah. These are all ideas. I mean, we're looking, we have, there are specific technological resources that we need that are kind of, they're saying, hmm, we need these to make computers and iPads and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how many more units, you know, by iPad 10. <laughs> Yeah, are we, we, we going to be worried? I mean, they sold um, they sold thirteen and a half million in the last three months. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so by that point, uh, so we're looking at other places. I mean, there's two thirds of the Earth is covered in water, so we're looking to see, you know, what outside of the Earth can we get? What is close by? What's under the sea? Where are all the places that we can get all these materials? How feasible is it? What kind of impacts would it have? You know, looking at things legally, look at things environmentally based. Yeah. So there's all sorts of different things that we're looking towards. And technology is kind of up to the point that it is reasonable that we could go out. That we could start designing something to go out, you know, dig well, up a dirt of some, dig exciting. up a scoop of something on an asteroid and bring it back. Or go under the sea and successfully, possibly, you know, mine specific minerals out. That seems like such a short term. I mean, short term in the terms of the universe. Yeah, well, it is not a very, I mean, you could maybe get another, what, 100 years of materials, but then what are we going to do? We're still, we still have the core yeah. issue. Well, I mean, there are some ideas that, you know what, I'm going to have some great emergency rations come, but I can't get them for a year, but they will last 20 years. But I need, so I, I'll put that on order and I'll get that, but I need something to last me between this and next year. Oh, yeah. So. It's reasonable to get in stages of things, you know, make these plans for these great things that we can do. Keep moving those forward, and but also do exhaust what know, we have now. <laughs> no, just to have some short term and midterm solutions to get to that point. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense for me to starve for a year waiting for, you know, my rations to come in. But you probably just should have gotten your food taken care of earlier. Well, you know, what what? I don't do? have a time machine. I, I don't have the neutrinos to send back messages to myself. The quantum particles are lacking, and so you yes. can't. Hindsight's twenty twenty and all that. But yep. Imagine though, if we had stayed on trajectory, if we had kept on our space path, maybe we would be a little closer to that. But like it's, you say, you do make a very good point. We have to do something in the meantime. So what are we going to yeah. do? You got to you got to do something. Yeah, as long as we're moving forward in other ideas, then 
just keep moving forward in those and figure out what we can do in the mid to short term to get us there. Uh, great links for this story in the show notes, as well as a link to the story about the uh, seafloor mining and also uh, a video of the uh, from the company that's talking about actually going up there. And there's like a little behind the scenes stuff and the showing mm-hmm. some of their machinery and some of their design work. Oh, cool. Any other thoughts on that one? No, it's just let's figure out how we're going to get all these things. No kidding, because we apparently needs our iPads. Yes. This is actually a, a hilarious tie in, but uh, I bet. I bet iPads will be a very popular gift uh, this Mother's Day. And uh, everyone knows, because I mention it all the time, that if you go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and you scroll all the way down to the very bottom of the website, we have links down there for Amazon US, Amazon UK, ThinkGeek, Newegg, Best Buy, Mint.com, Audible.com, which I love, Gamefly, which is new, Mm -hmm. and uh, also we have a Chrome extension, which you can use to uh, automate a lot of those affiliate services. Now, the Amazon US, that's an interesting one in Amazon UK because, like I mentioned, it is, of course, Mother's Day in like uh, mm-hmm. a week and two weeks or two weeks away. Like yeah, two weeks one, away. Two weeks away. It's like actually, it's like not, it's even less than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, if you're going to buy from Amazon this year, consider using our affiliate link at the bottom of the site before you go. Of course, now Amazon will tell you the Kindle Fire. Well, of course. You know, maybe. I could actually see the Kindle Fire probably would be a very good mom gift because it's yeah. it's simple enough and, you know, Amazon's got a pretty good content library and it's yeah. cheaper than an iPad. True. So that's not a bad way to go. And uh, we get a great cut on those Kindles if yep. you uh, if you go that route. I think I think Jupiter Broadcasting gets more than the uh, than the average uh, product when oh, you do that. Just so. think about that. You could get your mom for something from Mother's Day and then you could tell her, hey, I, I also listen to cool science and technology shows and they make me smarter. Aren't you proud? And they made a little cut off of your Kindle there, mom. Yeah. And then you know what else is very meta about all of that is if mm. uh, people actually do that and we actually make a little revenue, that's probably what I'll do is I'll use that once we get paid to buy Angela's Mother's Day gift. <laughs> so it's very meta. It's very, it all, all comes together. It all notice? comes together. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you everyone. Who does that? All right, Heather, are you ready for the SciBite News Bite? Oh my goodness, what is the first story in the News Bite? Today we're going to talk about recovery from strokes. Wow, so okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, not so much of an upper topic, but there's a drug administration is looking up, currently, after you get a stroke, you have, you get administered drugs to Break up clots. Right, right. You know, takes, you know, needs to be given within about four and a half hours after the stroke. So they're kind of looking for alternatives because it's not often that someone gets in that quickly. Oftentimes it may happen in their sleep or, you know, if it's a minor one, eh, just kind of blow it off until later. But now they have now discovered there's a, a brain derived neutrophatic factor that's. It's powerful and long enough that it has nerve growth. So we're looking at the development of the nervous system, how it involves with the brain functions, memory, learning. And there's this compound that they found that mimics the behavior of this specific uh, neural factor. So little tiny molecule, you know, lays much less than the actual thing. It can go through and it can actually speed the recovery of after a stroke, they had a mice trial, as often these do. And the mice who received the drug showed um, as many of this, you know, they were looking at the nerve cells com- as opposed to their counterparts. And they had 
half of the stroke affected nerves than without the drug. Oh, really? Yeah. And it actually wasn't even administered until three days after the strokes. So it, it doesn't, it's not just that it limits the first output. It's not decreasing the stroke itself, but it actually aids recovery. And because it's so, because it was administered three days after and it still works, then that is definitely an upper because you can give this to someone afterwards and it lets them be able to stimulate your, your brain's own stem cells to form new neurons. Wow. So they can. So it's not using some of this, you know, stem cell technology wherever you stand on that. It's using your brain, your body's own stem cells. It's stimulating that to get your brain to make new neurons so that you can recover. And there was recovery of, you know, they were stronger and moving the affected limbs more, yeah. more quickly. So it, it's really promising that, you know, they had this drug that sort of, a lot of these drugs are triggering things that are already in our body. Yeah, that's amazing that a drug can trigger that. Yeah. So it's like there's our body's defenses in there and they're finding the right things to go in and tweak the right switch. Right. You know, you have to make sure that it's not, you know, flipping a couple others at the same time. <laughs> but I mean, depending on your situation, you, you know, there's some people, yeah. I mean, look at chemo, right? Yeah. There's a lot of side effects to that, but the, versus yeah. the alternative. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there's, you know, I have family with the uh, severe arthritis and they are given a drug. Now that, that drug has side effects. Of course, the other side effect is not being able to walk. Right. Because the arthritis kicks yeah. in so much trouble. Yeah. Uh, I have, uh, I had, uh, my grandpa had a stroke in a nap, uh -huh. like I think he was having a nap and, oh, yeah. uh, he kind of like woke up later on and kind of realized what had happened. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't think he went to the hospital right away when the doctor no. found out later, they were, they were not happy with him. No, that's, that's one of the reasons why they like this as, because a lot of older people when that happens, they just kind of you know, brush it off. My great grandmother actually had one in her twenties. Wow. So that was, you know. it was sort of a thing that the family is like, all right, everyone be aware of this. If something funky goes on, don't even think that just because you're 20 something, that it's not that. Yeah, definitely. Right. Go in and get it checked out. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, any other thoughts on that one? I think uh, anytime these drugs make uh, steps forward, it's very intriguing and hopeful. Mm -hmm. Now, if they could develop it. Now, do you know, so I suppose once, once the time is up they, they they're so theoretically they take a drug for a while it's mm -hmm. the stem cells are activated they sort of do the neurological repairs they need to do and then the person can stop taking the drug it would assume uh from what i can tell that that would be the way is i hope so it's just like it seemed like it was almost like physical therapy yeah okay where you, you go you get things back into the happy place and then you go now of course you know, once you've had one stroke, then they have to watch you because you're more likely to have blood clots. Yeah. There might be some sort of, you know, drug combination in working in a team that you can make sure that it produces the effects. You kind of bounce back quicker and it doesn't happen to you again in the future. I would move to California and get a medical marijuana card like that. That's what I would do. Now, I have a question for you, Heather. Are you okay. left handed or right handed? I am left handed. Oh, really? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> why don't you tell us about our, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I happened to ask that, but do tell I us. Because I read a story about the competitive nature of lefties. <laughs> All right. Tell us about that. Uh, I call shenanigans on myself for having a story about being left-handed. <laughs> are you, uh, are you, uh, would you consider yourself a competitive person? Somewhat, yes. <laughs> yeah, I could see. I, I would agree, but not in like a hostile way. You're, no. very, you're very polite about your competitiveness. 
Well, that's the best kind of competitive person. Yeah. Well, it's the competitive nature in the fact that, um, well, let's take a step back. You know, they really don't know what's going on while you're left-handed or right-handed. Maybe genetics, maybe environmental. But on the average, about 10% of the population are left-handed. Okay. Now. Wow. It seems so, like more than that because I seem like I have, you know, known many left-handed uh, inclined people in my life. And it's got to be. Well, it changed like it's specific. That's like in general. Now, there's these ma- new mathematical models that say that uh, the reason I say competitive nature is because if you're right-handed, it comes to a need to kind of balance cooperation, comp- you know, uh, competition. So you're kind of thinking in the herd. You're not necessarily in the herd, but you're thinking we're all going to go out and hunt this one thing. We need to work together. Huh. Left-handed people are kind of the oddball out. So you're kind of like pushing for yourself. You're like, no, me that hunt for a little. sounds a little shaky, I got to say. Well, it sounds they've a little. Ac- they've actually gone through and actually in the animal kingdom, you can have uh, left pod animals <laughs> you as know, the case may be. I, ha- I had two rat terriers and uh, I definitely noticed that one of them was more dominant when we played mm-hmm. with the ball because uh, he would reach up and like bat at it and he'd always do it with his right paw. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at it that way, there is the need to cooperation versus competition. And actually, the model kind of etched out the percentages, what they thought it would be. Hmm. And there's... It seems like to me, it's, uh-huh. it seems like to me, now I don't mean to cut you off, but I don't want to get too far from the, uh, because yeah, the, the, u- back. the universe is uh, it's not like you guys, so you get all competitive. You know what I think it is? I think you're bitter. I think it's I'm because bitter. everything is designed for us right-handed people because we are the <laughs> dominants. And you know, mice, uh, uh, cars, like you know, just like the, like the controls on the steering wheel columns are often, I think, more inclined for right-handed people. And I think that kind of puts you guys on edge. And it kind of gives you a little extra spitfire. And I think that's what it is. That is part of what they think, too. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, literally. It's like you're working against, like, the norm. So you have to be, like, a little bit more competitive against everything else because you have to have that edge. All right. That makes sense. Now, I mean, left-handed people's brains do actually, naturally left-handed, they do function differently. They They handle process language differently. The part of your brain that recognizes faces can sometimes be in a different part of the brain. So it's like how things are interconnected are actually different, you know, uh, language centers. But, you know, you're saying you know a lot more left-handed people than you think that. Now, baseball, like of the top hitters in U.S. Major League Baseball, 58% are left-handed. Huh. You know, uh, you know, in general, baseball has 30%. Uh, presidents, American presidents, at the last five, um, two are left-handed, two are ambidextrous. And generally, um, you know, that was beginning to the fact that it wasn't so much in the idea that lefties had to be forced right-handed, but even the first two um, early presidents, I mean, starting in the 1980s, you know, you had to be, even as a kid, it was sort of, they wanted you to be right-handed, but they weren't forcing you. But before that, I mean, at a certain time, left-handed was seen as a disability. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, there were definitely times where, you know, you were forced to be right-handed, you know, left-handed, left-handed could be, you know, tied down. But, I mean, since 1929, over a third of the presidents have been left-handed, um, you know, 14% ambidextrous. So, this huge chunk of... That is so know, interesting. 
you know, so it's these competitive, you know, politics. Now there's some idea that, you know, since communication is laid out differently, that that may be a part of the, you know, that the fact that the top you president. You know, seeing the president sign with his left hand looks mm-hmm. kind of funky. You know, it's funny because like being left-handed, I am specifically aware of when people are like writing with their left hand. Because it, it's very odd looking, actually. It, it, it does not look normal. So I could almost kind of see how an ignorant population might consider it like a, because it's just not like at first, it's just not what it looks like. I, because you well, don't have to, because the way the right-handed people write, they don't have to hold their hand quite well, out it, like that. Well, it's all because in uh, left to right writing societies, if you write left-handed, then your hand smudges over everything that you just wrote. Yeah, right. In elementary school, pick up my hand. Yeah. The whole side of my hand is covered in pencil. Yeah. Now, I'm rubbed against it. I find myself able to do some tasks with my yep. left hand. Like yeah. uh, I can do the camera switcher, I can do the soundboard, or I can do yeah. a mouse with my left hand. And but mm-hmm. I'm very, you know, I would consider myself prominently a right-handed person. But I have trained myself over time to use my left hand for a lot of tasks, or you yeah. know, a lot of other things. But primarily, yeah. like stuff that you know is is sort of generally you would attribute to your primary hand. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people are ambidextrous, and no matter what hand you is your dominant hand, you'll have various capabilities with the other hand. I mean, I, in any sport, I pitch hit in the middle of the game. I'll like bowling, I'll bowl right-handed, I'll bowl left-handed, drive everybody completely crazy. <laughs> um, you know, I'm predom- I game predominantly with the right hand from my mouse. Oh yeah. Okay. But at work, I'm just as likely to just flip it over my monitor and use it on the left hand. Of course, still keeping with the right-handed trigger <laughs> triggers nice. so that I can hand it to somebody else and they're not completely, uh, messed up yeah yeah but you know these percentages of variant uh i mean i knew that baseball had a had a huge percent a much larger percentage than the general population of these because you always hear about you know the southpaws and pitch hitters and things like that so so it's, it's, it's sort of interesting and it's kind of questionable as to how much this actually will pan out i mean yeah. there's mathematical models that say, say it so far but you can do amazing thing with things with math um, that's true. You can always make things go as you like, uh, go as you want them to go. But yeah. it is an interesting statistic about the presidents. You got me there. Mm-hmm. You got me there. All right, Heather. Well, I believe it's time for the two news bite. Two bite news. Two. Two bite news. news. Biting. Two bite news. So you know. Okay. So here's the joke to that. Is okay. Uh. I named the clip on the soundboard Two Byte News, and that's what I look at when I when I fire it off. And but I, I'm fully aware that the segment's called Two Byte News because it's right here in front of my face in the show notes. But <laughs> uh, I I guess I just think I'm hilarious. That's okay. All right. So what is our first story in the Two Byte News? Do not worry. Have no fear. Talking to yourself does not mean you're crazy. Science actually agrees. Really? Now, uh, do they? Uh, okay. Well, I'll let you tell. I have an interesting story. Go ahead and uh, continue. Okay, well, this is in general, you know, um, but there's studies that say that saying the name of an object out loud can actually help you find it quicker. They had, you know, people that, you know, here's a big room, find this. You know, they let some of the people just look around and some people will be like chair, 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 ah, chair or keys, like keys, keys. I'm trying to find my keys. Aha, there's I, keys. I think I have done, I think I have just instinctively done that for like when I'm really looking for something like my phone, my phone, phone. Well, adding that auditory component actually increases the visual centers in your brain. It helps, you know, it helps find those things quicker. Now, it doesn't necessarily attach to everything. 
So it's, if something you're not familiar with, then it doesn't necessarily help you find it. Or if it's very abstract, mm-hmm. you know, you need a... Com- so a lonely guys can't go around saying, girl, girl, girl. Well, they can say girl, <laughs> but I'm sure they have a, a strong connection, but they might end up at the computer. Oh, or, okay. Uh, oh, okay. All oh, right. terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Bad Heather. Oh, Heather. You know what you get? You just earned yourself a... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, you want? All right, all right. (laughs) I knew you had it in you, though. I'm so proud. Uh, All right, so continuing on. Okay, I had a neighbor who uh, never stopped talking to himself. Do you think that's okay? I don't know. I like talking to myself. I talk to myself a lot around the lab. I'll talk to the computer. Is it loud? Like so so say like you picture yeah. picture a man in his fifties <laughs> talking okay. to another man in his fifties, maybe five feet away from him. And uh-huh. just, you know, jokes and laughing and having yeah. a good time. Except subtract the one person. Yeah. Okay. And he was and we were in townhouses. So oh, uh, he was right next door. Yeah. I, I, I talk more of a silent talk. Now it'll depend, like if I if the machine's going and I have my little headset headphones on, you know, blocking out the sound, and I don't notice that it's it's gone. I may continue talking the same range. Yeah, okay. But it's generally sort of just sort of to backtrack into my brain. I'm like talking through a program or something. Yeah, yeah. But there, I mean, there are definitely people who worked there that would just talk, like they're talking, and then you'd walk away, and then you come back, and they'd be like five minutes later in the conversation, and you're wondering whether they're just talking to themselves, or they just didn't realize you weren't there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, that but, that kind of thing you know, is a little odd. You know, it just everyone says you know you're crazy, or if you argue with yourself, if you argue with yourself, you're not still crazy either. I think, um, yeah. hey, no matter what, you you're you're probably maybe going to win. Um, That's true. I have a lot of internal dialogues, you know, which yeah. which I'll I find useful for like thinking through a problem or something like that. Yeah, my uh, internal dialogues tend to be out because. I'm a blabbermouth and I talk a lot. Probably because you're left-handed. That's probably what it is. Uh, I'm bitter to the world, so I must externalize right. my thought to make up for it. Should we talk about liquid solar cells? That sounds pretty interesting. I think we've talked about them before, actually. Yeah, we've talked about, there's lots of different uh, types of solar cells that they're looking at. Um, they're in the, some of the latest is they're developing um, you know, pathways to cheap, stable solar cells made from nanocrystals. Nanocrystals! so small they can be in liquid ink so you just like paint it or print it onto clear surface you could totally do like a desk jet type thing like an inkjet cartridge yeah just like total inkjet of that about four nanometers in size you could fit more than let's see 250 billion on the head of a pen wow so you know like you were saying print it out like a newspaper possibly Input it into various things. So it's kind of. You know what like, I want to see it done yeah. is I want to see it printed out on um, roof tiles, you know, so you could just yeah. install it and put it on there and bam, yeah, well, just plug them in. Yeah, we've talked about other ones that are, were like that, you know, various, looking at all these different types of things that could possibly help, you know, input, increase the ability to get that solar power out of all the different ways you can. Yeah. So I'm trying hey. to think of out of the box way. Solar box- is such an awesome way to go. If we can make. You know, maybe maybe efficiency as we continue to make that work, maybe the solution in the meantime is just mass, mass production of uh, of something that we can do on a large scale that we can spread out until we can make them more efficient because that would be really great. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is an interesting moment for the show moving on yes. because, uh, you know, like actually I think people will come to find out in a long time. Sometimes Cybide is a little bit ahead of the crowd, but now we have yeah. to give the, uh, the major media out there, the rest of the news outlets, their crown because they're finally catching up with Cybite. What's going on? Yes. I've had a couple people write into me or t- talk to me about this. Um, you know, some major media outlets said, you know, oh my gosh, we found a nine planet system. It's the biggest we've ever had. Yeah. And until you go back to, you know, a couple weeks ago, Cybite 42. Yeah. We kind of talked out, about that already, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, first, you know, kind of thing, 130 light years away. There's new statistical analysis that says that the number of planets is up to nine, which, you know, cry pluto lovers but make it bigger than ours you titled uh, it a busy planetary system right yes i did yeah that was very so, nice that really fit and you really yeah you got it there plus we yep. talked about it is this the same type of stuff we talked about in previous shows as well or is this uh, a different discovery this is separate from like, different discovery okay. uh well there were a couple of links in that particular story about yeah previous exoplanets yeah 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 that's what it was yeah yeah, so I'll do kind of related stories sometimes like, oh, remember we talked about this kind of a thing here or there. Yep. Those are some great show notes because, yeah, it's nice early title together. Yeah. So, cool. Well, so there you go. So congratulations to the to the regular uh, media there. They're now, yep. uh, I guess they're keeping people informed. I don't, I don't really know what they're yeah. I don't know. What well, doing. there was another one that came out too. Oh, yeah? Talking about a planet found in the habitable zone of a, of a star. Oh. This one takes us all the way back to, I think we covered it in February. Oh, really? Uh, early February, Cybrite 32. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And they're just now talking about it? Well, a lot of these things, I think what it is, is... They're evergreens. You know, I have. Well, they're, yeah, forever, they're forever. evergreens. That's what I call them. Yeah. When I can record something that I can shelve yeah. and then roll out when I need content, like what I was supposed to do with uh, this week's uh, Foundry Files, but I well, deleted yeah. them. But yeah, that kind of thing. So these might be stories they've been sitting on for a while. They've known about it, but they just haven't published. Yeah. So they're like, either they're just holding on to them or, you know, they've, they've got a slot to fill and they send out interns to crawl <laughs> interwebs and go, ah, cool story. Yeah. Right. Could be that too. Hmm. Well, so uh, that, boy, that, and that was February. So there you go. Yeah. All right. All right. Heather, well, are you ready to move on to the feedback? I am. All right, I'm opening up the uh, Cybite mail computer here. Okay. All right, so uh, this is an interesting one, and I uh, I saw this out there too, and I think you got I think you got some people writing into the show about this as well. The uh, spirals it, on Mars. Yes. Uh, interesting photogra- photographs where it's literally little like look like, like little Nautilus spirals on Mars, yeah, almost like snail shells. <laughs> yeah, Nautilus snail yeah. shells. Yeah. Well, uh, I can't. Okay. I think Nautilus, the file manager. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so this actually started uh, researching in a totally different area. They were trying to look at uh, nighttime infrared temperatures of these lava plates. And so it's like how then sort of Wikipedia style, someone said, oh, I wonder how the terrain between those plates look. And then some grad student starts noticing spiral patterns in the lava. You know, it took a little bit. You know, why it wasn't discovered till now? It took a little bit of zooming and tweaking of the contrast. Oh, okay. I thought this was like new pictures. No, it's it's old photographs. It's just that you had to be really zoomed in and tweak the contrast a little bit more to be able to kind of find these and find them to see them. Very interesting. Now they are found on Earth as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, these are the kind of things that are from lava. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So you can see them in the Hawaiian Islands, uh, near the Galapagos Rift, on the Pacific Ocean floor. So what happens is when you have lava flowing past, you know, flows of lava going at different speeds or directions, because sort of this rubbery crust can, you know, sort of peel or coil into wrinkles. Right. That can be twisted. So now you have a faster, you know, speed uh, lane of lava kind of zooming by and it yeah. sort of twists this up onto each other. So, right. you know, now these are, the ones on Mars are quite a bit bigger than seen on Earth. Um, they can, on Mars, some of the pictures, you can see uh, about almost 100 feet in diameter. Mm. About in, on the Earth, they're only about a third of that. Okay. So, just some interesting things. You know, we've seen these type of things on Earth, so we can kind of pretty much guess what's going on there. It's on a much bigger scale, but it's another one of those things where, huh, it's, it's in old data. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it is. They found data in the data again. Yeah, they did. Uh, and also, it's one of those things, you know, I love, just like the dust devils. It's like mm -hmm. this weird kind of somewhat, it's like a form of life on Mars. Like, Mars is continuing on in some some kind of small way. That's, even though there's not, like, organic life, there's still activity. Yeah, well, this is older activity, but yes. Well, yeah, no, but, but I'm sure something like that might happen again someday, right? It's lava, that could come back, right? Sure. You don't think so? <laughs> Uh, once things settle down, not so much. I mean, we get you volcanoes. You are and ruining stuff. it. You are ruining. I it know. Right now. I know. Lava volcanoes come from the Earth's plates moving around, because they're still active. And Martian plates aren't really all that active. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay, that's a bummer. I was hoping maybe they were like party animals or something. No, they partied and now they've settled down. They left college. <laughs> you know, they're, they're settling into their uh, their nice little office job and they're just doing their thing. <laughs> Oh, man, Heather, you humor me too much. I uh, thank you. All right, well, why don't we do our spacecraft update? What's in the spacecraft update this week? All right, again, the shuttle shuffle continues. Shuttle shuffle. Yep, on Friday, April 27th, the Spatial Enterprise was brought to New York City on the top of 747 aircraft after uh, the discovery was delivered to a Smithsonian. You have got to check out a, a youtube video in the show notes wow it's like you know the plane's like all right i'm sorry we're gonna have to be delayed scoot to this part of the tarmac and the guy's like get over runway. here get over here get a shot of this get a shot of this yeah and it's like this person with a little camcorder in or a phone cam in their phone in the in the plane and looking out the window and suddenly here comes the shuttle down wow on the 747 like on the runway next to them that is I was, like, so showing cool some of the people at work and i was like you know adding my own captions and voice track to it. They were all like, that would be the best delay ever. Oh, yeah. I would love to see something like that because it's it's one thing to see the pictures of it, but to see it in yeah. person. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, man. That would really be a treat. But oh. again, this week, there are all sorts of image galleries and video galleries and stuff in the show notes. Uh, I, I, I'm sad that the shuttles are kind of being, you know, sent to their little... Uh, um, retirement centers um yeah I, i'm excited that people get to to be inspired by them but i try not to talk yeah. about it too much i'm just like hey check it out they're moving about the country they're great though and we'll they're get great. to you know maybe now we'll get to go look at them on our own yeah we have be one uh, in california we got another update in here don't we we do what is it space, space x 
X, the Falcon 9 rocket. It is preparing for a scheduled launch on May 7th. Oh. They're headed to the International Space Station. It will yeah. be the first private right. um, delivery to the space station. Right. Now, everything goes, everything goes, I mean, they had a prep engine firing uh, yesterday on Monday. Ah. Um, yesterday from this recording. So, you know, they're prepped, everything's looking on. So, theoretically, they'll, they'll go. They'll blast off, they'll, the capsule will decouple, it'll, you know, it'll kind of make sure it's okay there. They're kind of putting it a pause in, in every, at every stage of the procedure. They'll go up, get stable, get close to the space station. Everyone will kind of look and be like, all right. And then they'll reach out with a little arm and pull it in. It'll deliver all sorts of supplies. And then the interesting bit is, we've, I mean, we've done that before. But what's interesting about this specific program is that the space station will then dump stuff back into the capsule and it will be able, it has heat shield, so it'll be able to survive. It'll land um, two, three hundred uh, miles off the west coast of California. So they'll actually be able to go out and retrieve it. So this kind of is the idea that, I mean, not only could they just, you know, the space station has trash, they can get rid of that trash, but they could also return uh Return science, the science. Uh, the crew that wants to come home or is on rotation well, to come home, that kind of thing? Well, possibly. Even just uh, tests. You know, they, oh. they run these worms. Experiments, or, yeah. Yeah, return these experiments that need, you know, short term. So, you know, hey, we've got this data. Let's send it back and Earth can analyze it. And it's, you know, you don't have to wait for the next crew changeover or anything. You can just send these experiments back on and move things more quickly. So, Man, that's I've, exciting. So, And it's going to happen uh, the Monday before we record because we do SciBite live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. This is happening Monday, May 7th, which is a Monday. Yes, it is. And hopefully I will be full of glee and happy fun times and being like, yay, they launched. And then the next week I'll be like, hooray, they made a delivery. Hopefully that's how the next couple of weeks of SciBite will go. Yes. It's hopefully not very much. 30 minutes or less, but it's getting there. <laughs> it's not no it's definitely not 30 minutes or less but well, i guess it, i guess you got to start somewhere yes now uh, a story that i actually have seen a lot of recently is oh, yeah. uh in the headlines is meteorites yes it was a big california meteorite scene uh they saw it you know flying over the skies a huge area of you know even to arizona i believe could see this huge fireball in the sky sonic boom and, you know, they've actually confirmed this thing was probably between four and five billion years old, mm. probably about the size of a minivan, um, <laughs> a little over 154,000 pounds. Now, it's, a, you know, and then so they found little pieces of it. It didn't burn up. Um, it actually just causes the, uh, the friction against the air actually causes it to vaporize. Uh. But a couple of these small pieces actually made it to Earth. They've been... Yeah, so there's a handful of little pieces that people have found. Um, there are some people that just like they're almost professionals. They go out and look for these things. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. So there's because there's money in that, huh? Yeah, you can totally sell it. So they have their little, you know, they eyeball everything. They're like, okay, here's what here's where it's going to be predicted to land. I've got my metal detector and I've got my shovel hmm. and just go out and search away. Well, and that's a good idea because, you know, it really is the hull of an alien spacecraft shot down by the U.S. military <laughs> secret space operation force. So uh, I would get, I would think that would go for a pretty wars. penny. Space wars, yeah. 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 So, yeah the, you know about, right, the space wars? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Um, um, science is not convinced. Uh. <laughs> science hurts. Uh, well, yes. so uh, this is interesting because you have storm chasers. Now you have meteorite chasers. That makes yeah, sense. This, yeah, the guy who found the first pieces has been doing this for more than 20, 20 years. He's oh. found meteorites on every continent except Antarctica. So, like I said, there's some people that really make, have a long-term history in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. The, You gotta love something, Heather. And if it's space rocks, so be it. Hey, I'm all for space rocks. Yeah. So. Now, there was a meteor shower that was going on during that time. They don't think, uh, it's called the Lyrid meteor shower. They don't think it was part of that, but they are still looking for if anyone had um, uh, photographic or video, even uh, security camera footage, which is where a lot of these come come from. If you have any of that kind of uh, kind, there's places on the show notes to say, hey, you know, go input it here. And so they can kind of figure out exactly the trajectory of it, how it came in. So once they figure out that, they'll be able to kind of backtrack that and figure out where it came from. Was it part of the specific meteor shower? Was it just sort wow. of a, a meteor asteroid that was came flying through? And Right. Just a stray rock? Yeah. Just a stray rock that Earth got in the way of. <laughs> Silly Earth. Hey, Heather, step over here into the time machine. Let's, step, okay. let's go back. All right. Here okay. we go. All right. Oh, watch out. Oh, here we go. Here we go. This one's rough. Oh, oh man. You know, I'm starting to get a feel for these. I can almost tell you how far it's going back just by the sway of the time machine. Our first destination this week is 75 years ago, May 6, 1937. What happened, Heather? Yes. Oh, the humanity. Not funny. The Hindenburg. At 7.25 p.m., the Hindenburg burned while landing. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey, I believe. Oh, so, you know, 61 crew members, 36 passengers, you know, everything seemed normal for them. And then suddenly, and that- a huge burst of, of flame and rapidly blew through the 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen, which was filling the balloon. And it just went up so quickly. And along with it, the whole uh, industry of those types of aircraft. Yeah. And it's actually funny because it's still debated to this day, not the entire uh, scientific community is convinced about any one reason why it happened. You know, I have a fond, I have a fond spot for these types of, uh, of these types of uh, vehicles because they look just like these, you know what it is? They look really fuel efficient. <laughs> like they look like they wouldn't take nearly as much to, uh, to propel them because of yeah. their overall size. So you know, you could use a lot less gas to make them go. And that seems like a good design to me. And plus, yeah, they I mean, just look awesome. Yeah, I mean, there have been these type of dirigibles used for a long time. You know, it's you, you know, if you have a big balloon, a couple of gangplanks in the middle, you can kind of turn it just by walking forward and back or back, left and right, you know, kind of aiming just by doing that. 75 years ago, really, if you think about it, is not that long ago. No. It's it's kind of interesting sometimes when you think about these. You're like, whoa, that's where it is. And, and looking at some of the footage, you know, yeah, yeah. You we're showing that in the visually enhanced version right now. The footage of it, and it's just really astonishing how fast it all happens. Oh yeah, and sometimes you've seen like little clips of it, but to see like this much video, like a uh, you know chunks of video about it, mm-hmm. is kind of like whoa, huh? It kind of takes you back. A bit. Could you imagine if we lived in a world where these things are flying around the skies right now? That would be really something, wouldn't it? As long as they weren't hydrogen filled. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, that that would definitely be a requirement. Maybe they could uh, fill fill them with something less less blowy uppy. 
Yeah, we could all talk like chipmunks and it could be uh, helium filled. I'd, I'd be up for that. Although you don't have yeah. to ride in the actual balloon, Heather. Well, yeah. All right. Our next destination takes us even farther back in time. Uh, yeah. 222 years ago, May 8th, 1790. Acting on a motion by the bishop, uh, they actually decided to go to the metric system. So the the idea of starting the whole metric system kind of started. They started to stay, you, need, you know, like we need a simple decimal placed system to measure units of, of distance and all these kind of things. So they started off with uh, a meter was chosen as the length of a pendulum with a half period of a second. So like, all right, we're going to wait out this uh, pendulum. And when it hits this exact timing, that's going to be a meter. There, we chose it. Really? Yep. And so then, then they kind of changed it. It's also been at one point it was uh, defined as one ten millionth of a distance between the North Pole and the equator. Um, then they changed it again to be <laughs> adapted. There've been a couple of different ways to define it, but the whole process of a nice, clean decimal decimal placed uh, system that only the u.s is very um you know we have our ways yeah except the scientific community and then we're all we have fun um, right translating back and forth to six different ways right yeah yeah there's always that kind of extra language barrier there but it's you know it's more precise right it is so it's it's more base 10 based so it's ah there you have it all right well the sci-fi computer here is blinking and i do believe It's time to look up into the sky. That's right. What's going on this week up there? Well, we recently had another coronal mass ejection not hitting the Earth. It's going to pass by Curiosity Rover. So it's it's had a couple hit over the last uh, few months. Oh, okay. And it's equipped with with, to be able to handle that. It actually has some instrumentation on it to sense and study these solar solar storms. But this happens every once in a while. That's kind of interesting. So this, yeah, of course they figure that's going to happen. That makes sense. Well, yeah. you have to prepare for that. Yeah. But uh, looking forward this week into the sky, mm-hmm. Thursday, May the third, you're gonna have Saturn and Spica to the lower uh, to the lower of the moon. Okay. And Saturn's gonna be farther away to the left. Uh, as we move on to Friday, now the moon's gonna sit below of Saturn and Spica. On Saturday the fifth, now it'll be on the horizon, uh, below and to the left of them so it's kind of moving as the nights go by there's a, a picture in the show doc to kind of give you an idea of how how they're going to be moving together as friday saturday uh you know move on right also on saturday is going to be a full moon now some people may hear in the news uh or have friends mention super moon it, <laughs> it's not scary <laughs> the super moon what's that it's so the moon has an orbit around the Earth. Yeah. You know, it has the I've time heard that. It, it's, yeah. I'm familiar with that. And it has, you know, the closest part of its orbit and the farthest part. And at the closest part, uh, at full moon, that means the moon is actually appears to be a little bit larger. It's about 14% larger, 30% brighter. So it's just when the, the one time of the year when the full moon is at the closest part of its orbit to the Earth. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. All right. Well, yep. I can definitely look forward to that. Yeah, that's on Saturday. So okay. everyone, check out the really bright. So, moon on so the Saturday. order of operation for Saturday, everybody. Just so you know, 
is yes. wake up, uh, yes. eat breakfast, watch yep. Stoked Live at 11 a.m. Pacific. There then you go. Go eat a big lunch dinner, and then in the evening, watch the moon. Yep, the moon mm. and Saturn and Spica. Yeah. And all that crazy stuff. Uh, note, be aware for uh, anybody in the Americas, uh, there's going to be an annular eclipse, which means, you know, like I said, the moon has distance. You know, it's not always the same distance from the Earth. So, you know, as an eclipse, it's just the right size to block out the entire sun. Now, sometimes it doesn't. It has oh, like a little ring of the sun or sun around ooh, it. Oh, cool. So for the Western Americas, uh, you guys, you'll have one, um, a par- an annular eclipse and a kind of a partial eclipse for the rest of the Americas. So once we get a little bit closer to that, I'll, uh, I'll tune in. You'll let everybody know? Yeah. Yep, I will let everybody know. I was actually know. just saying to somebody in the, uh, in the chat room that, well, often you know, Heather waits till it's a little closer. That way people uh, don't lose track of it. So I was yeah. actually just answering a question right there when you said that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I'll mention things uh, kind of far out and then you know, I'll be like, hey, realize that this is coming this summer. And right. then it's like, it's a little closer. I'm like, hey. It's coming up. That? Yeah. It's coming up. Yeah. There's hey, always a few week. things like that. That's what's so cool. Yep. That's why I love and, that segment. Yep. For our friends in the Southern Hemisphere, all these things are pretty much the same. It's just you have to uh, vertically flip all things. So when I said Saturn and Spica will be, um, you know, below the moon, oh, then you they'll just be above flip it. They'll be above the moon. Okay. Hmm. Well, there you go. Just flip it and reverse it, folks. Just flip. Like uh, vertically flip. I know, but Taylor, that doesn't. That's not from a song. Well, okay. I think that's the whole show right there, isn't it? I think so. Awesome. Well, great show, Heather. Great show, Chris. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for tuning to this week's episode of SciByte. Now, SciByte is live, like I mentioned, on Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. And then, of course, we release just a few hours after that with all the links and everything we talked about in the show notes. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of SciByte. We'll see you next week.